Open your Bibles to James chapter 3, please. Let's pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my God. Father, our desire is to hear you speak. We do not speak in quiet voices in our mind or in our hearts, but you speak very clearly through your word. I pray that you would bring conviction, that you would open our hearts to see who we are before you. And those who are not saved, may they see their inability to please you. And those who are saved, we pray that you would sanctify us for your glory. As we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. James chapter 2 from verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. In the Jewish context, speaking much is considered to be a high virtue. I don't think that that is true today of us. Today words are many, but virtue is low. Speaking in a variety of contexts have multiplied. Before speaking was quantified by how you communicate with person in word or in writing. Nowadays, we have texts, uh, social media platforms, blogs, what is called blogospheres. Words are many, so it's become easier to trip up. The Bible warns us about being slow to speak. Why? Because where there are many words, there also sin abounds. Look at Proverbs chapter 10. Verse 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. The corrective is given in 20. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. A righteous man can speak good things, but the wicked man, from the overflow of his heart, will 
speak. Proverbs 21. The tongue brings many troubles. Verse 23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself from trouble. My mom used to say, your mouth is going to get you into trouble. That's a truism. Not that it happened to me. Just saying. I'm small and short and had a big mouth. Because the tongue is never alone. Proverbs 6 verse 16. There are six things that Yahweh hates, seven that are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that, de- that devises wicked plans, and feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. Wow. Of the six things, three, I think it's three or four of them, deal with the tongue. A great deal of error and evil comes from continual speaking. Yet slowing down and speaking less is difficult for many of us. Slowing down and thinking before speaking is not a quality that most of us have, especially when it comes to social media and responses. You are in that environment required to respond quickly because you can't make a statement and allow a million of other people to respond on your comment and not respond. So words are quick. Speaking is many. And with that, sin abounds. We have no problem in correcting others, even if we don't have all the facts. Ever been caught out like that? Maybe on social media or in a chat? Our mouths or fingers spill over what we really think. Yet as believers, we need to take care of how we say things and when we say things. Last week, we took some time to consider this one. And James commands his audience that not many should become teachers. It shouldn't be something that is natural to all of us, wanting to be in the pulpit of God. The reason he provides is at the end of verse 1, For those who teach, we who teach, will be judged with greater judgment. This is why we should avoid becoming teachers. This morning, we will explore the explanation of his command. Why does he tell us that we will be judged with greater judgment? If you remember, I gave you two major points last week. The one was, don't become teachers because a greater judgment awaits. And number two was because, don't become teachers because we all stumble. This morning I'll consider the second part of that. We will consider three ways that James supports his command and warning not to become teachers. Here are the three ways that he explains it. Number one, there is a propensity to stumble. 
Don't become teachers because there's a propensity to stumble. Number two, because there is an unachievable perfection. And number three, because we all have a perpetual problem. Propensity to stumble, unachievable perfection, and perpetual problem. Say that three times over. We should not easily or quickly become teachers because we have, we all have, a propensity to stumble. Let's give attention to, we are prone to stumble. James chapter 3 verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. Let's pause there. James explains that believers in the synagogue, but now you should know that, these people must not be hasty to seek out the position of a leader. In fact, the verbal sense is don't you yourselves cause yourselves to become teachers. But in the beginning of verse 2, he starts in our English translations with the word for. And this opens grammatically an explanatory clause or an explanatory sentence. It explains why we should not become teachers. Now, while the English does begin with the word for, the Greek actually begins with the word many. And there's a reason why James begins with many. Although technically it should actually be at the end of the sentence. He begins with this word. James is stressing the reality in what we do. Stating what we do first. So the sense can be drawn from this. Everyone is uh, prone to fall many times. And so he moves many to the beginning and saying many times for we are prone to fall. James uses his word to highlight the frequency and regularity of stumbling. He's asserting that stumbling takes place in a variety of different ways, in a variety of different times. It happens over and over again in plain English. If you ever spoken to Hilton, he would say it like this. It happens a lot, no? <laughs> That's how he speaks, right? Why mention this? Why does James mention this? Remember, this is an explanatory clause, so he's trying to explain. He's explaining that the teacher's responsibility is weightier because of the universal predisposition to stumble over and over again. On account of this, judgment is greater. But notice what he says. For we all stumble in many ways. Let me put it in a more literal sense. For many times, or a lot of times, we all stumble. This problem is true of all of us. It is interesting that he includes himself in it. We all stumble. Now, I've heard that many equate this with Romans chapter 3, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It's not an exact equivalence. Because James considers himself to be a teacher and he's a believer at this time. So he's writing of a natural occurring event that includes believers. We all have a problem in stumbling. 
Not so much a disqualifying sin, as some would suggest. He's opening up the window into the heart of the believer and unbeliever, something that happens so frequently that it is common to all people. James says, like me, we all are prone to stumble. What kind of stumbling is in view? This word literally means to fall, to fall into a ditch, to trip over. It means to trip and lose your footing. You get the picture, right? Let me give you an illustration. Kids have low spatial awareness. You know what that means? Uh, they trip and fall and stumble over things. That is normal. That, that, that is, they bounce, so it's okay. Kids... Kids do this all the time. However, some adults also have low spatial awareness. You may not be aware of this, but we won't mention names. There are certain individuals who come in and knock over coffee cups who are under chairs. I mean, I don't know, I don't know how that happens. Don would <laughs> confirm that. They trip over cables. They knock the drummer behind the head. They smack the singers. I'm not mentioning names. Just saying it happens without being aware that they've just disrupted the entire worship team. Low spatial awareness. We all know someone like that. You know what I mean, right? There's a constant tripping and falling, and these people are always getting hurt. That's what James is talking about. We have low spiritual, spatial awareness. We stumble and trip all the time. We do not see the traps of sin or the potholes of temptation. We were down in Polokwane? I forget what it was. Polokwane. And man, the roads are bad. There are potholes the size of Cape Town there. It's ridiculous. But anyway... The tense of this verb tells us that this occurs not once or twice, but it's an often repeated occurring event that takes place normally as a part of life. There is not a single day that we do not trip in many ways. These are not mistakes or just things that we can look over. But failing to meet the high demand of God, there is no one who does not keep himself from falling. This reality or our human propensity to stumble should make most of us halt from wanting to be teachers. Now, a teacher who was called to be a teacher is a teacher. He's going, to do this. He's going to desire the position regardless of knowing this. And God weighs his heart down because he knows the responsibility that comes with teaching and the judgment that comes because of being a teacher. So, first of all, James lays out before us that there is greater judgment because we have a propensity to stumble. What is this stumbling that he is talking about? Well, the second idea that James highlights here answers that question. There is an unachievable state of 
perfection. Look at the middle of verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone, that includes everyone, does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man until there. Pause there. James has a very specific fall in mind. I don't know if you picked it up, but listen carefully to the literal rendering of this word. If anyone does not stumble in word, this perfect man is able to bridle even his whole body. Slightly different, but you get the idea right. Notice what he says. If anyone does not stumble in word. It's actually singular. In our translation, it says, in what he says, it gives more the idea of speech, ongoing conversation, and that is okay. But the word is singular. Let that sink. If there's anybody that does not trip over a single word, that's an unachievable perfection. That's mere impossible. Regardless of whether he's saying, uh, having a conversation or a single word, because there are guys on both um, sides of the the, um, path of this, the reality in both is pretty scary. That nobody stumbles in conversation, does not stumble in conversation, and nobody keeps his mouth to such a degree that he doesn't stumble in a single word. James is intimating that this is not a possible reality for you and I. There is no one who doesn't struggle with this. Yes, moreover, there is not a person who is perfect in speech. We all stumble in the area of using our words. It's humbling. Even more so because James includes himself as a teacher in this. For we all stumble. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Who are, who's the immediate audience here? Don't many of you become teachers? Those would be teachers. Why are teachers in view? What is their tool of operation? What do they use a lot? Their tongue. Teachers talk a lot, whether they teach from a podium or not. They just naturally talk a lot, besides Joel James, of course. You know that, right? This explanation is behind why we will have a greater, stricter judgment. Because it's so easy for teachers to sin with their tongues. Because they use their tongues much more than others. So he goes on to say, if anyone does not stumble in word, that person is a perfect person. Able to bridle his whole body. The implication, or rather I should say the application of what James is saying here, is that if you are able to control your tongue, if you're not able to stumble with your tongue, if you are perfect in the use of your tongue, then you have mastered your body. The stumble that he, stumbling that he's talking about here is not general sins. It's a specific use of the tongue. Hence the word, word. 
don't jump to a conclusion yet because the illustration is the conclusion. So I'm not going to wrap it up yet. I want you to be led by James to what he wants us to think about what he means here. If you are this person, able to bridle your tongue, this passage no longer applies to you. Because he said it, then you are a perfect man. James shows an unachievable and impossible reality that is before us. Now this idea of perfection has been debated at length on a variety of different levels. Is he talking about being perfected in the absolute reality or maturity and something that we can achieve? So if mature, then James is holding out the possibility that you are able to hold your tongue and become mature, meaning that you are able to then control your entire body. That's the idea of maturity. So that's possible. If he speaks about perfection, then you are saying that if you are able to hold your tongue, bridle your tongue, control your tongue, then you have reached a state of perfection. That's two different things. Which one is it? Well, the illustration will help us with this because it explains what he means. But before I get there, I don't believe it's mature because he uses the same word in chapter 1, verse 4. And he says that when you go through trials, God uses trials to bring about maturity. So the net result of something is maturity. But here he says in a descriptive way, it's an adjective, it is a place next to the man saying that this is what the man is. In fact, literally it means this perfect man is able to bridle his tongue. So it's not the goal, uh, the end goal, it's not the, 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 the state reached, it is what he is. So it gives the, it's a, a, uh, the adjective uh, attributes a quality to the man. You are perfected. And so James says, this perfect man is able to bridle his whole body or control his whole body. That is not a possibility. Show me a man that has bridled his tongue and I will show you a man that lives in the kingdom. He's perfect. He's been glorified. This, however, is not a free license to sin. James is not talking about being free to want to do what you want to do. But James is highlighting the struggle we all face. Why? To make sure that teachers understand the weight that they are placing upon themselves. Remember what I said last week when he says that you take to yourself a greater stricter judgment. So knowing this, You add to yourself a greater judgment knowing that you have the propensity to stumble in word. So James is actually talking about being perfect in every way. The extent of the specific perfection is expressed in the last part of the sentence. Look at the last part of verse 2. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says or in word... This perfect man is able to bridle his whole body. That's a deliberate exaggeration known as hyperbole. James is saying that this is an unachievable reality for you, for all of us. If you bridle your tongue, then you have already bridled the body. Then you are perfect. That's the conclusion. So, 
It is an unachievable perfection. Test it out. Before you get home, test it out. See if you maybe lashed out at a taxi driver or a cyclist who's on your path and he doesn't want you to get through. We are not in the kingdom. We have not been perfected. We are not glorified yet. If we were, we would be judging the, this world with righteous judgment. Why? Because we would have been perfected and can then do that. But we can't. In other words, the person who has reached the capacity to have mastery over his tongue, this person, this perfect person, has mastery over his own flesh. Is that possible? Not the side of glory. That person does not exist. By implication then, we all stumble in word. And this person, this teacher, should be careful to take this position to himself. What does he point us out? To heighten and intensify the command, do not many of you become teachers. James wants those would-be teachers to realize the weight of judgment that will be placed upon them. Take a closer look at yourself, then you will realize, I should probably not be a teacher. So this unachievable problem adds to the weight of his command. So not only is there a propensity to stumble, there's an unachievable perfection, but also there is a perpetual problem with our tongues. So let's consider the last point. There's a perpetual problem. The point is not so much that you're able to control your body, but the connection between tongue and body. That's what the illustration should lead us to. The tongue is small, but it is not independent. It affects the body, but it is caused to do so. And I will explain that what I mean by that. The tongue is driven by something. James is making the case that those who are in the position and function of teaching are more prone to sin with their tongue. They tend to trip up because they use their tongue more often. Therefore, they will sin in this capacity more often. Now, at this stage, James shifts completely to the tongue. Why is this important? Verse 3 to 5 tells us that. It tells, explains why the bridling of the tongue will affect the entire body. So there are three parts to this illustration. And, and let me just ask you, what does an illustration do? It illustrates, right? It brings clarity to the main point. Now there are quite a lot of commentaries and sermons that make the illustrations the main point. They take the component parts of the illustration and say, well, there you go. That's what the main point is. The tongue is a small member, therefore, uh, in relation to the small member of the bridle uh, or the bit or, and, and the rudder, it, it controls the entire ship. So therefore, that is the main point. That is not the main point, though. James leads us to the main point. Often we think that he's just making a correlation between a small thing and a bigger thing. And I'm going to lead you to what his main 
point is. Here's the common two views that, um, that this illustration relates to. They are very simple. A bit controls a large horse. Pretty simple. A small rudder controls a large ship. Yeah, sure. So that's the foundational understanding of what it is. And so the net result is the small tongue controls the body. Most of the time, that is the focus. But there's something else that is often missed in this illustration. We will read it together and then we'll highlight it. So let's read the illustration. If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member yet boasts great things. So you've got two illustrations, a horse and a ship, and a summary statement. Verse 5. Note the emphasis though. We put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us. We guide their whole bodies. What's the emphasis on? We, not the thing. Keep that in mind. Look at the illustration of the ship. Look also at the ship. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. Who puts the bit in the mouth of a horse? It has to be a person, right? Because the horse doesn't just pick it up and puts it in his own mouth. The real question is, who has control of the horse? Not what has control of the horse. The bit is the means to control. That's the point of the horse illustration. The bit is the means to... Have you ever sat on a horse? It's the worst thing ever. Don't, don't bother doing it. Horses are powerful. That They have a lot of potential energy, strength. And if they want to go a certain way, they will go a certain way. To control them, the bird pushes down on their tongue or you pull back into the corners of its mouth and you can cause it to do certain things. The bird is the means to control, but who controls the horse? Not the bird, the person, right? The same thing is evident in the ship. Look at the ship. I have to mention this, that there's... Uh, in the beginning of verse 3, it says, if we put, it's literally, behold. In verse 2, it's repeated in, look at. And Wednesday, I'll take some time to explain that nuance and why that is significant. But look at the ship. Though they are large, they are driven by strong winds. What causes the ship to go forward? It's the strong winds. They are guided Literally, through a small rudder. So what is the means to guide the ship? The rudder. What guides the ship? Not the rudder. Don't please don't tell me it's the rudder. He tells us because he leads us to it wherever the will of the pilot directs. Did you catch that? What directs the ship? Direction of the ship. Directs the ship. What directs that? 
the pilot. How does he do that? Through the means of the rudder. What directs the, the, the entire force of the body of the horse? The, is it a pilot? What sits on the, on the horse? A rider. <laughs> I call him a pilot. This guy or lady directs the, the horse. He changes the direction of the horse, not the bit. You know why we get this idea? It's because James uses the word, the tongue is a small member. It's, he uses an antithetical argument to make the point. The aspect of control is in view. You can write on Psalm 32, verse 8 and 9, where uh, the psalmist speaks about a horse that does not have understanding. And if you don't bridle and bit it, it will not stand next to you. It makes obvious sense, right? In other words, if you don't have control over this horse, it will not be tame. The agency is the small thing. But the will of the person is what is in view. So James gives us illustration one, horse being controlled by the will of the rider or pilot. Now illustration two, the ship is directed by means of the rider by the will of the pilot. He doesn't state the will of the pilot in the first illustration because he's building up to it. Both illustrations have one point. There is a will that directs the big thing. There is a will that is behind the small thing to, go, to direct the big thing. Make sense? That is the most important part of both illustrations. The will of the captain or the will of the rider. Wherever the will of the pilot, pilot directs, that's where the ship or the horse goes. Now... The summary statement. So also the tongue is a small member, yet boasts. See how it changes? Does not direct, boasts great things. So he uses the counter argument to make the argument. In other words, as in the animal kingdom and in the maritime world, the principle is the same. Someone controls large object, objects through the agency of small things. Small things do not control. It is somebody that controls it. A person is in control. He doesn't need to have physical power to turn a ship. He doesn't need to have physical power to turn a horse. He just needs to have a will and a bit. So the focus is not so much on the bit or the rudder than it is on the will. So don't miss the point. We guide the entire body of a ship or a horse. We turn it by means of the small thing, but it's directed by our well, so let's deal with a summary statement. So also then, in same way that you understand what I've just said, let me make this argument. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Tell me, who is doing the boasting? Who is doing the boasting? 
It is not the tongue. It is the will of the one who controls the tongue. That's the point that he's making. Your will is behind your use of the tongue. Your will is behind the direction of the horse. Your will is behind the direction of the ship. Likewise, your will is behind what comes out of your tongue. So don't ever say, well, I didn't mean to say that. Oops, that was a Freudian slip. No. Let me say it this way. False teachers mean to say what they say because it comes from their hearts. You mean to say what you say because your tongue is directed by what? Your heart. The small thing is not the controlling factor. It's the thing behind it that controls the small thing that controls the big thing. Does that make sense? That's the point. You see the same point illustrated in verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire cause of life, and set on fire by hell. Wow. The tongue is not actually the thing that boasts. It is the heart of man that is boasting. Look at verse 11 and 12. What James is pointing to is cause and effect. The cause, the heart, the origin, and then the result. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? What is the answer? No. Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives uh, or a grapevine produce figs? The answer is no. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What is he saying? The source of the water, the seed of the fruit, the kernel of the olive determines what comes out at the opposite end. Likewise with the tongue, what is in the heart is made manifest on the tongue. So then, what is the relationship between tongue and body? What does he say if a man is perfect, is able to control the whole body? Let me put it this way. If your heart is sanctified, if you have been regenerated, what will be on your tongue? Seasoned speech, godly words. Encouraging words, not breaking down, not harmful words. Why? Because the heart has been changed. Therefore, every part of you has been affected. That's the point that he's making. If the tongue demonstrates a certain characteristic, then the whole body is affected. The entire person is affected. Because the tongue is a mere reflection of the reality of the heart. Let me push the envelope a little bit more. What you say you mean, the way you say it is is a demonstration of who you really are. 
Some of us have bursts of anger lashing out at people by means of our tongue or by means of our fingers. That is who you are. These are not momentary episodes, a lack of uh, um, consciousness where something happens outside of your body. You didn't mean to type that or say that. No, you did. That is who you are. Your will is revealed in what you say. James lays this before us because of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12. Listen to the words of Jesus in verse 34. Speaking to the ungodly Jewish leaders, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you're evil? Again, you see connection between the heart of a person and the result of that. You speak evil, why? Because your heart is not good. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That's the principle. It's called the saying, the logia of Jesus. This is the sayings of Jesus. And James catches on to this. This is the reality that he's emphasizing. Your heart is made manifest on your tongue. You are the sum total of what your tongue reveals. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of the evil treasure brings forth evil. Your heart is made manifest. So what James is pointing out to his readers is there is a perpetual problem with the tongue. But it's not so much the tongue. It is the heart beyond the tongue. James echoes the words of Jesus and so he says, the tongue being a small member, it boasts great things. Why? Because the boasting is already in the heart. And the tool, the means, the rudder, or the bit through which it is manifest is the tongue. As a result of that, the body follows. Because wherever the heart is, the tongue will show, which means this is how you live. In biblical counseling, this, word, this, this passage is used a lot. I should say Christian counseling because what happens is that they try to modify people's behavior by saying, change your tongue. That's not what James is saying. He's saying, look at your heart. What is the kernel? What is the source of the use of the tongue? What causes you to act the way that you do and say the things that you do? It is your heart. So the tongue then is the manifestation of what lies in the heart. If you focus on modification of your behavior, that will be short-lived and you will default to what is already in the heart. It's always shocking to me how Christians protect false teachers of shame. They mean well. They also love the Lord. And they ignore the heresy that comes from their lips. 
We do that because we love people and we want to think the best of people, and it's a good thing to, to do. It's a, it's a good attribute to have. But a false teacher means what he says. Don't, don't be fooled, as Paul says. They mean exactly what they say. They willfully lie about Christ. They willfully blaspheme our Lord. They willfully deceive the people of God. And it's not a case that they did not mean what they said. No, their hearts are made manifest by their teaching. This is true of any preacher. James here speaks about the boasting of the tongue because he highlights what is already present in the heart. Our boast on our lips reflects what is resident in the heart. The evil on our tongue is already a thought in the heart. The criticism by our tongue is a is a living reality in our heart. The harsh words, the anger, the sinful accusations, the insensitivity, the inconsideration, the unsympathetic words, we speak, bespeaks of a greater problem we all possess. Our hearts are not where it should be. Again, there is no such thing as I did not mean to say what I said. The point is clear. Your tongue is the measure of your heart. Therefore, knowing this, James says, knowing who you are, don't be quick to become a teacher. That's the weight and the reason for saying what he says. Now let me answer the question. How does this change? Well, God expects us to change because he gives us a new heart. Turn over to chapter 1, verse 18. You will see it in here. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. There is a new life that is granted by God. It's a gift of God. You become a new person by means of the word of truth. So it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves people, that changes lives. Look at the result. Knowing this, knowing that it is God who changes us. My beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Why does he say that? Why? Because a changed heart has been granted in verse 18, and so a changed life must be evident in verse 19. Let me put it this way. A changed heart is given in verse 18, so a changed tongue and a changed attitude is evident in verse 19. How do we change our tongue? By having a changed heart. We don't do it. God gives it to us. Implication is this. Your tongue does not have a heart of its own. Your tongue does not act upon its own, by its own. Your tongue does not mean to say what it wants to say. Your tongue only speaks what the heart wants it to speak. You are revealed by your tongue. Whether when we lash out, whether we have angry speech, you are showing who you are. That's the point that James is making. Your tongues is a reflection of your heart. Your tongue 
gives others an insight to the nature and the state of your heart. Now, you may be a believer and have an angry tongue. What does it tell you about your heart? You have anger in your heart. You may be a believer and have a hurtful, constantly hurtful response to people. What does it tell you about your heart? You don't care about other people. The tongue has no power by itself. The tongue is only influenced and affected by the heart. As I was writing the sermon, there was a song that came to mind. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What is that song? Come thou fount of every blessing. I don't know about you, but that weighs me down. We are prone to wonder. Why? Because of our state of our hearts. James says, this sustained focus on the tongue is necessary because if you become a teacher, you should know the judgment that you take to yourself. I hope this scares you as would-be teachers. It scares me as a teacher. Teachers will fall in a variety of ways. and He's warning them to consider the position and task of teaching. But this verse applies to much wider than those who are teachers. He says, all of us stumble in this way. Guard your heart. Protect your heart. And you will be able to direct your tongue. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your son has died for our sins. The sins that we so gladly, privately cover and the sins that are evident on our tongues. You know our hearts, Lord. You know that there are many of us who struggle with this. We ask your forgiveness, but not only your forgiveness, we ask that you would help us, Lord. Pray that our hearts would be so changed by your grace that we would be able to speak in a way that honors you, builds up your people. Forgive us for the thoughtless words that we utter at times. Forgive us in the hurtful ways that we speak to people. Grant us the grace and the willingness to ask forgiveness in ways that we have spoken to people that was unrighteous. Lord, you know us. You know that we all struggle with this. Pray that you would grant us grace to speak in a way that demonstrates that you have changed our hearts. For those who do not have changed hearts, we pray that you would grant them Grace and by your word change their hearts that they too would be slow to anger, slow to speech, and quick to hear. That your grace would be made manifest in their hearts. Receive glory by the way that we speak with one another. So we ask these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.